I'm thankful that each one of you is here today, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be back with you. It's been 18 years since I've been here for a gospel meeting. It's been 40 years uh, since I conducted the first gospel meeting here. I had a meeting here in 1975, in 81, in 84, in 88, in 94, and 97. And uh, after that, you decided you couldn't stand me for a while, so you, you let things roll by. Uh, all I've been doing since then, turn this down just a little bit. I have a built-in microphone. Uh, about all I've been doing since then is talking and eating. I'm a two-talent man, and I'm really good at eating. And a lot of times people think I'm good at talking because I'm not good at listening. I appreciate all of you young people being here this morning, and we are especially interested in you. I try not to be partial to anybody, but if I lean in any direction, it's toward the young people. I'm the school grandpa at Fried Hardeman University. I have about 1,800 grandchildren, and they won't let me count them off on my income tax. But I associate with young people all along. And the fact that I'm gray-headed, young folks, don't think I've got both feet in the grave. I've not. And I'm just looking forward to being with you throughout the week. Let me tell you just a little bit about my preaching since it's been a while since I've been here. This will make me 761 gospel meetings. That's about all I do is talk. And I, God has blessed me to give me good help. So when I came in today, somebody said, we've been discussing how old are you. And I hope you don't go by looks, but I'm 75, and let me take care of a couple other things. I'm 5 foot 18, and I wear a 15 shoe. So if you don't want your feet stepped on, get them back, because I'm, I've got the equipment to step on them. There are three things that I try to emphasize in preaching, and the all three start with the letter S. And as I mention these, I'm going to tell you a little story. I believe God intended us to be happy. Now, I'm serious about preaching God's Word, but I enjoy a good life. I know God had a sense of humor. He made Doug Bart <laughs> and me. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I like to emphasize being sound, simple, and short. Sound. Little boy said, I believe the Bible is God's Word. A man was making fun of him. And he said, Son, you think all of the Bible's inspired? He said, Mister, I think it's inspired from Genesis through the maps. Well, I don't think the maps are inspired. But I do believe the Bible is inspired and that we need to look at it as God's Word. And by the way, let me throw in something right here. The decisions of the Supreme Court, as sad as some of them are, have not changed one word in this book. They did not change God's word. They did not change what sin is. They did not change the consequences of sin. They did not change the fact that we'll face God in the day of judgment. And they did not force on me anything that I have to do to violate God's word. I can still be a Christian if I'll respect this word. We need to get back to the Bible. Folks, so many times today our preachers are preaching good lessons in many ways, but they're not getting back to the fundamental principles of God's Word. And if we don't do that in one generation, we're going to see apostasy. And so I, I want to be sound. I'll give you book, chapter, and verse and the lessons, and I encourage you to look them up. Number two, I want to be simple. 
two fellows were in the cattle business, and one of them gave the other one $1,000 and said, go out to Texas and get us a new bull. When you buy him, send me a telegram, and I'll come and get you. Well, he found the bull that wanted, but he had to pay $999, and he only had $1 left. He went in and sent a telegram. The lady said, you can't send but one word for a dollar. He thought and thought. He said, send the word comfortable. She said, comfortable? Yeah, he said, my buddy back home is a slow reader, and when he reads that, he'll read, come for the bull. <laughs> now, I hope my preaching's not full of bull, but uh, I do want it to be simple and then short. You notice I'm preaching two lessons each night? Been doing that for, I think I was doing that the last time I was here. And we'll get out in about an hour each night. Some people say that's a miracle if I can preach two lessons and get out in an hour. But I believe in being short. I like to have my lessons organized and get up and speak up and shut up. A man came into a service like this one time, and that day the preacher was long-winded, just kept preaching, and finally the man got up and left. As he left, one of the ushers said, where are you going? He said, get a haircut. He said, why didn't you get it before you came? He said, didn't need it. And so I guarantee you that we'll try to have preaching that's sound, simple, and short. And young folks, if you get sick and have to go to the emergency room, we'll excuse you. Otherwise, I don't want any of you to come this week or any service because you think you have to. Come because you want to. If you want to worship God and serve God, I won't have to spend any time trying to convince you that you need to be involved. Just do what you know. Be here. Invite others. How many of you young folks uh, have your girlfriend or boyfriend here this morning? Bring them. How many of you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? you got from now till tonight at 730 to get one. <laughs> But do tell others, and especially since we're meeting tonight at 7.30, try to call someone this afternoon that goes to one of the other churches in the area and ask them to be sure that it's announced tonight at their services to come and be with us. We are going to study this week Heroes of Faith. It was suggested to me with the first correspondence that we had that you wanted me to emphasize faithfulness this week. 1 Corinthians 4.2 it is required of a man that he be faithful as a steward. Faithful. Not perfect. None of us is perfect. But God wants us to be faithful. Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. And so we're going to look at ten lessons this week, beginning this morning, on Bible characters and notice them as heroes of faith. Um, did you publish the subjects I'm using? Okay. Was it in the bulletin or what? Okay. I, haven't, I hadn't seen them. Uh, at the worship hour this morning, we're going to talk about the God of the common man. Tonight, we'll talk about in the first lesson, the man after God's own heart. And in the second lesson tonight, we'll talk about the odd couple. Any of you have any idea who the odd couple is? It's not the one on television, thank goodness. It's Aquila and Priscilla, and what's strange is neither one of them is ever mentioned without the other being mentioned. 
And we're going to take that tonight and talk about the importance of husband and wife teams and faithful couples in the work of the church. This morning, I want to talk with you for a few minutes about the problem solver. Folks, we have problems in this country. We have problems in the church, and as long as we have people in the church, we'll have problems. We have problems in our families. I heard one man say one time that my wife and I have been married 50 years, and we have never had a short word toward each other. I'm of the opinion that he either has lost his memory or he's not telling the truth. We have problems. We're human. And you know what we do most of the time is place blame. We're pretty good at placing blame. We had four children at home at the same time, four teenagers at one time. And I don't know how many times I remember them saying, and they didn't even get it right English-wise, he done it or she done it. We have an easy time placing blame. One of the reasons is I can see your faults more easily than I can see my own, right? Robert Burns said, would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. I've never seen myself just like you see me. When I look in the mirror... I'm looking at this as my left eye. You see, my I've never seen myself like you see me. I've never seen this part of my head. They tell me that's the best looking part of it. But I can't see myself as you see me. And so we do an excellent job placing blame. We blame the preacher. We blame the elders. We blame the deacons. We especially blame the preacher's kids. You know, you've heard PKs, the preacher's kids are worse than them. You know why preacher's kids are so bad? They run around with the deacon's kids. But anyway, we have a good, uh, uh, we, we do a good job of placing blame, but we don't do such a good job solving problems. If there is a problem and we spend all day placing blame, we're still going to have the problem, and it may even be bigger than it was at the first of the day. Solving problems. What can we do about it? What are our options? What can I do to make this situation better? The man I'm talking about today as a problem solver is a man in the Bible who is known as Barnabas. It is said of Barnabas in the 24th verse of Acts 11, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. Now it's interesting that faith is mentioned there because that's our general theme during the meeting. He was a good man, Barnabas. If you're following with me in your Bible, and we're just going to look at some passage in the Bible in this lesson, let's go to the last few verses of Acts 4. Now here's the setting. 3,000 have been baptized on Pentecost. They're in Jerusalem. Many of them are away from home. Didn't expect to stay in Jerusalem this long. They're converted. And now there's a problem. And it says that, verse 34, Neither there was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold. 
and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted is the son of consolation, and in some versions that may say encouragement or exhortation. In other words, he was a man, his name even meant that he was a man who encouraged others, and many times the name was given to people based upon the character that they had. He was a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you crossed into the next chapter, you'd read about Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them? They sold land too, didn't they? And they brought money to be used, but they lied about it. Their problem was not in having the land or setting the land or keeping some of the money. It was lying about it. They said this is all of it when it was not all of it. But Barnabas brought money to the apostles' feet that they might use it to take care of the needs of those that needed food and other necessities of life. He was a problem solver. Today we have people in our midst that have needs. And even though the first responsibility of the church is evangelism, right close to it is the need of benevolence. And sometimes, especially in some of our foreign countries, we've got to take care of the benevolent needs before they'll listen to the gospel to take care of their spiritual needs. There ought not be anybody in this church particularly that goes without the food that is needed. We're told to help all people, Galatians 6.10, but especially those who are of the household of faith. There was a problem in the state of Wisconsin back several years ago. That's a predominantly dairy state. One dairy farmer had a disease hit his herd, and he lost every cow that he had. Somebody that was sort of the leader among the organization that they had got them together. He got about 50 farmers together, and he said, if each one of us will give him one cow, he'll have a herd to start back with. So 50 dairy farmers gave one cow. That didn't hurt that much, did it? But it put him back in business. And that's the way we need to do things in the church. I think we need to do as much as we can to help others through the church, and that's one of the reasons we give. In fact, there's more said about giving for the purpose of helping the needy than there is for supporting the preacher. And I'm not against supporting the preacher, and I believe the Bible teaches that. But the biggest emphasis in the Bible is for us to give on the Lord's Day so that we will not have to take up a gathering when there is a need. And that's solving a problem. And even though we need to do as much of that as we can through the church, if you meet somebody tomorrow night or on a Monday night, let's say, when the meeting's not going on and he's hungry, you're going to say, well, we have a business meeting the first of the month and I'll bring it up and see if I can get you some food. You can starve to death by then. And if you're a Christian and you do something to help somebody, does that still give Christ the glory? It certainly does. You don't have to wear a sign around your neck, young folks, saying I'm a Christian to be a Christian. Just act like one and people will know it. And Christ will get the glory. 
but help those that are in need. That's what is said here, that he was interested in helping those. He saw a problem. He went about solving it. Turn with me over to the ninth chapter. Now, in the first part of this chapter, you'll notice if you look back that Saul of Tarsus has been converted. And think about that for a moment. Here's a man that was persecuting the church, putting people to death, and now he's a Christian. And so he comes to the church and wants to be a part of the work. Look at uh, verse 20. Straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God, but all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on the name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this way is very Christ. After that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. And they were laying in wait and watching that they might do them. Now look at verse 26 particularly. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed or he wanted to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they believed not that he was a disciple, but... Barnabas, there's our guy, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached bold at Damascus in the name of Jesus. All of them thought that Paul was still persecuting the church, but Barnabas knew the truth. And when there were rumors that began to be associated with, with Saul, Barnabas said, listen, let me tell you what the truth is. And he came to bat for Saul, and they accepted him, and he became, of course, as you know, one of the great preachers of the gospel. Barnabas encouraged a new convert. He encouraged someone and came to bat for someone where there was doubt on the part of others. When someone new comes into this congregation, either being baptized into Christ or coming as a Christian and wants to be a part of the work, encourage that person. If there's a problem, don't promote that. If there's a problem, deal with it. But encourage those. Encourage the younger converts. When I obeyed the gospel, October the 19th, 1953, within a month... The men of the congregation, at a time that we didn't have a preacher and the men would just get up and read a scripture, said to me, next Sunday you read a chapter and make a few comments. I'd been talking in 4-H club work. In fact, I think I came into this world talking. So somewhere toward the end of 1953, I preached my first sermon on the subject of faith and works. And you know some of those older people, especially those older women, patted me on the back and told me I did a good job. They may have stretched the truth. But I'm going to tell you something. I've been preaching 61 years. And one of the reasons that I'm preaching today is because of the encouragement that I got as an early Christian and when I started preaching. At age 15, I was preaching every Sunday, going to four different churches, five on the fifth Sunday, and preaching. That way I could use one sermon all month, you see. But encouragement. Folks, encourage new converts, and especially encourage these young people. And let me spin off of that just a little bit. Even in their work at school, encourage them. If you see that one of them scored a touchdown on the football team or 
One of the young ladies has attained something at school, and you see them next Sunday morning at church, stop and pat them on the back and tell them how much you're thankful for them. And I don't think you're out of order to use the word proud. I'm proud of you. I'm thankful that we can be proud of our young people. Encourage one another. And I'll tell you something else. I'm going to stand at the back door there every night so that if you want to say something good, you can. And if you want to say something otherwise, you can. (laughs) I don't look forward to that, but I need that sometime. But let me tell you, it's more important for you to encourage one another in this congregation than it is to encourage me. Wednesday night, I'm leaving. I'll go back home Thursday morning. But your elders are here. And when you get a preacher, he's going to be here. And these others that are working with you in different ways, encourage them. If you want a preacher to work himself to death, keep bragging on him. That way you can get rid of him. Encourage each other. That's what Barnabas was doing. Now let's look over at the 11th chapter again. We noticed the description of him there in the 11th chapter. But I want you to look at verse 22 beginning. Tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Barnabas was an encourager, not only of the new convert, but the entire church, just like we've been talking for the last few minutes. He was encouraging the church. He exhorted them all. And remember, that word consolation could have been translated exhortation. He was a man of exhortation, encouraging them. Encouraging the teacher that teaches the class. Encouraging the deacon that works in a certain part of the work of the church. Encouraging each elder as he has a part of the greatest responsibility on earth. James A. Garfield was one of our presidents. He's the only one that was a member of the Lord's Church when he became president. And he is recorded as saying that when he became president, he resigned the greatest office on earth to become president of the United States. He was an elder in the church. Encouraged. That's what he did. But go on to verse 25. He departed, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I want you to concentrate on that word taught. One of our biggest problems in the church today is a lack of knowledge, ignorance. And now ignorance is not a synonym for stupidity. I do some stupid things every once in a while. I don't have time to tell you about the time I decided I'd be a plumber and decided that water in that dishpan needed to be gotten rid of, so I poured it up in the sink and the pipe was off and it came right back down. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, and I'm talking about ignorance, lack of knowledge. I think we do not really understand how much our people in the church do not know I'm having people tell me I haven't heard a sermon on the home in years. I haven't heard a sermon on why we sing and worship and only sing. We are not instructing our younger generation. 
And folks, the biggest problem, in my opinion, we have in the church today is the lack of understanding on the part of members in general of the distinct nature of the Lord's church. Most people think of it only as another denomination. They do not understand the distinct nature of the church that's described in this book. How are we going to get rid of that? Teach, teach, teach. And when somebody doesn't agree with you, don't, don't run over him. Just stop and get him in a calm way to open with you in the Word of God and teach him. That's the way to solve problems. And if you'll study the book of Acts, there are nine specific conversions. And there, did I hear something? That's not a bell to quit, is it? Hope not, I'm not through. But anyway, <laughs> there are two things that are in every one of those nine conversions, baptism and teaching. Faith's not mentioned in all of them. Repentance is not mentioned in all of them. But in every case, though there were miracles that happened to bring people together, in every case the gospel was taught by the mouth of man. That's how the problem was solved. But now... I'm talking to those that don't need this point, but you tell those that are not here. Four services you have on each week, Bible study, worship, tonight worship, Wednesday night, right? And you've got some people that come to one of those pretty regularly, some not even regularly to that one. Now, if you cut out three of every four meals that were planned for you at home, what happened to you physically? You've got members here that have never heard a Bible class lesson in this building, right? You've got members here that have never heard a sermon that was preached on Sunday night or a class on Wednesday night. And then we wonder why we don't know anything. Wake up. Think. We need teaching. Then go on down to verse 28 here. There stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth through or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt at Judea. They've got some problems over there in Judea, and we need to help them. But look at the next verse. We need somebody to take this relief over there and see that it's used right. Which also they did and sent it by the elders, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We need somebody to see that this work is done right. Barnabas will be the fellow you need because he's a problem solver. Then look over to the 13th chapter in verse 1. They decide not only do they need to help the needy, they need to send somebody to preach the gospel. Now they were in the church with Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and he mentions those. They ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. They needed somebody to take the benevolent money over to Judea to help the, solve the problem there. Well, Barnabas is a good one. Now they need somebody to go out and preach the gospel in different places. And this became three missionary journeys of Paul. And Barnabas was with him uh, on the first one particularly. 
We need somebody to go preach the gospel in another place. Well, Barnabas is the fellow you need. Why do you suppose they chose Barnabas in all these cases? Because he was a problem solver. He's the one that would go out there and help solve the problem. Now, let me fill you in just a little bit. On this first missionary journey, they took a young man with them by the name of John Mark. You remember John Mark? He went back, didn't he? And now they are getting ready for the second missionary journey over in the 15th chapter at verse 36. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. John Mark has changed evidently during this time, a short period of time, but Paul's not convinced. And Paul says, no, we, we don't need to take John Mark with us. Barnabas said, yes, we need to take him with us. That says to me, reading between the lines, that Barnabas forgave more quickly than Paul did. Now, I know that John Mark was probably the nephew of Barnabas, and that may have had a benefactor in it. But just pretty soon after John Mark had turned his life around, Barnabas said, he's worth something. Let's take him with us. I forgive him. Let's overlook and forgive what has happened in the past. Paul said, no, no, I don't want him to go. Folks, we need to be forgiving of one another. I don't believe we can forgive unless people are penitent. We ought to be willing to forgive even if they don't repent. But Ephesians 4:32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Somebody says, I won't forgive him. I'll die and go to hell before I'll forgive him. And that may be exactly what will happen if you don't forgive. If you don't forgive somebody, you know who hurts the most? You do. You hold a grudge in your heart, and you're the one who will hurt. How do you solve these problems? Be ready to forgive. And by the way, and this is a lesson for another time, if someone has wronged you, or if you've wronged somebody, either way, you've got the responsibility to go. Matthew 18 if someone's wronged you, you go and then take somebody with you. But Matthew 5, 24, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that somebody has ought against you, leave your gift there and go straighten things out with him. Most every problem can be solved between two people if they're willing to sit down calmly and discuss it. And discuss it without prejudice. Discuss it without thinking that I'm in the right and you're in the wrong. Realize both of us can be in the wrong. Sit down and talk about it and bring the facts out and look at the facts. Our problems come when we deal with rumors instead of facts. And when we talk behind people's backs instead of to their faces. Say anything you want to to me, but say it to my face. Give me an opportunity to talk with you about it. Solving problems, that was Barnabas. And then there's another interesting thing in connection with this. You're along in those verses there in the 15th chapter. They didn't say, well, since we can't agree on John Mark, let's just don't go. You remember what happened? Barnabas took John Mark and went one direction, and Paul took Silas and went in another direction. They did not let a disagreement keep them from doing the Lord's work. 
And if there's a disagreement among, or among people or between two people in this congregation, don't let that keep you from doing the Lord's work. Even while you're in the process of solving it, be sure you go on preaching the gospel and worshiping God and serving Him. Don't let that keep you <coughs> from doing the work of the Lord. Barnabas was a problem solver. He wasn't the one who was always placing blame. We need congregations today full of people named Barnabas. At least their actions that are like Barnabas. Barnabas saw a need that somebody needed food and so forth. He helped take care of it. He saw where Paul was being doubted and he came to his defense. He went to Antioch and he encouraged the whole church. And he spent time with Paul teaching that congregation, at least a year, that they might know what the truth was. There arose a need to take money to Judea for the benevolent work. Well, let's get old Barnabas to do it. He knows how to do these things. Need to preach the gospel? Barnabas. Disagreement? Barnabas was ready to forgive. And pardon me, he was ready to go on and do the work even though there was a disagreement. I submit to you that that's the kind of people we need in the church. And it will help us to grow in our faith and to promote the faith, Christianity, throughout this community and throughout the world. A problem solver, not a person who was placing blame. And I encourage you to learn from that and try to be like Barnabas in your life each day. This is the first of ten lessons. I've told you about the two today. We're going to study one night the reluctant dipper. You have any idea who that was? Naaman. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Did he want to go? Mm-mm. But did he finally go? Yeah. A man saved by grace. I'll almost guarantee you there's not a person in this audience that will guess who that is. Who do you think the man saved by grace? We're going to have a lesson. God said, I'm going to destroy the whole world. But he looked at Noah and the Bible says, Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Noah was saved by grace. Does that mean he didn't have to build an ark if he was saved by grace? I'm whetting your appetite. And the last lesson in the series is going to be a like but different that's about two apostles, Judas and Peter. When I study those two apostles relative to the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter, I don't see any difference in the two except one difference. Peter got up and went on and Judas didn't. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the doubter. Now, I guess you know who that is, don't you? Thomas. But have you ever looked to see what else is said about Thomas? We've, we've misjudged Thomas, I think. Uh, I'm going to be here at every service, Lord willing, to see what I have to say. Be with us if you can. I've probably got another minute or two, but I work on the principle. When I'm through, I quit. I'm through.